you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. Galatians 3.17 And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. One of the most important and blessed words in all of Scripture is the word covenant. It is by means of God's covenants that he has revealed his righteousness and holiness and his grace and mercy to man. I submit to you that to fail to understand the significant place that God's covenants have in Scripture is to fail to understand and appreciate the beauty and wonders of God's free grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Furthermore, I submit that to neglect God's covenants in one's interpretation of Scripture is to deprive oneself of one of the most significant keys to unlocking the door to an accurate understanding of the Word of God. Thus, this sermon is not intended merely for theologians, though it may be more doctrinal than some sermons that I have preached, but it is intended for all of God's people, whether husbands and wives, whether parents and children, whether magistrates and ministers, whether church officers and church members. If there was one biblical concept, dear ones, that was foundational and distinctive to the reformers of the Protestant Reformation and set them apart from the Papists and the Anabaptists. It was the idea of covenant. All of life was covenantal to our spiritual forefathers, the Reformers. And should be as well to us. Marriage, business, contracts, Civil government and one's relationship to Christ and to his church are all based upon the idea of covenant. Without covenants, our society as we know it, and more importantly, our relationship to God and Christ would certainly cease to exist. It would collapse. God's covenants with man are in their most basic definition a relationship established between God and man in which God makes promises upon certain conditions and likewise issues threats upon failing to meet those conditions. <clears throat> but what I would have you understand is that God himself is the originator of this biblical concept and idea of covenant. He's the one that establishes. He's the one that initiates covenants with man. Did not originate in the mind of man, but originated in the mind and purpose of God from all eternity. All human covenants, in fact, are based upon God's covenants. There are three covenants that we should understand uh, as we give some preliminary remarks before looking at our text. There are three covenants that we should understand that are taught in Scripture uh, that are very significant and important, foundational in nature. First, the covenant of redemption was made from all eternity in the council of the Trinity, wherein the Father covenanted with the Son and the Son covenanted with the Father to secure the salvation of a people, a chosen people, from among sinners upon condition of the obedience of His Son to fulfill all righteousness in living for 
and in dying for particular undeserving sinners whom he loved from before the foundation of the world. Consider this covenant of redemption just for a second. The plan of redemption is itself eternal, sovereign, and gracious, and is, by, and is brought about by way uh, of the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is made in eternity between the Father and the Son. Jesus is said in Revelation 13.8 to be the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Many other passages, Ephesians 1 4, 2 Timothy 1 9, likewise teach the same thing. Christ speaks of promises that were made to him by the Father before his coming, his advent. He speaks in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, that God had promised by way of covenant, it's implied that God had given to him certain ones to save. They were given to him to save. We see also Christ is presented as the covenantal head of the elect whom he represented. And that in Romans chapter 5, this comparison between Adam and Christ, Christ representing his people and representing them again by way of God's eternal decree. Christ himself refers to the covenant made with the Father in an interesting passage, and I will have you turn here. Luke chapter 22, verse 29. This is, as I said, a very interesting passage because the force of the words does not come through in the English language. Luke 22, 29, where the Lord Jesus says... to his disciples, to his apostles, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me. The word appointed there is the verbal form of the Greek noun diatheke, which means covenant. It's the same word we find very you know, often in the New Testament. It means covenant. So, if we were to translate that as uh, the word, using the word covenant, I, and I covenant unto you a kingdom as my Father hath covenanted unto me a kingdom. When did that take place? Well, again, from all eternity, that covenant was made with Christ. Then there's the covenant of works. This is the second covenant God makes, and it is made with Adam as the covenant head of all his posterity, conceived by ordinary generation. Thus, Christ is accepted. This covenant is made with Adam while he was yet righteous in the Garden of Eden. In that particular covenant, God forbids Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death and by implication promises him everlasting life as signified in the tree of life upon his faithful obedience to God's command. Again, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, you will find that to be the case in Hosea chapter 6 verse 7, likewise. And as we noted earlier, uh, just as Christ is viewed as the covenant head of his people, Adam was the covenant head of all of those who were to follow from him by way of ordinary generation. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, as in Adam all die, so even those in Christ shall all be made alive. And Romans 5, likewise, speaks of this contrast between Adam and Christ. And the third covenant is the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace is distinguishable from the covenant of redemption, but inseparable from the covenant of redemption. This covenant is made after the fall of Adam, and that's how 
it is distinguishable by way of time. The covenant of redemption made in eternity, the covenant of grace in time. And the covenant of grace is the historical realization and fulfillment in time of the covenant of redemption, which was made in eternity. The covenant of grace consists first and foremost in the uh, accomplishment of redemption by Christ for his elect. And second, in the application of that redemption to his elect. So two parts to the covenant of grace, the accomplishment by Christ on behalf of his people, and then the application of that redemption to his people. Now, there are there may be different administrations or manifestations of this covenant of grace in biblical history in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the New Covenant. But we need to understand that even though they are administered under different signs and ceremonies, specifically, this is what is known as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the different signs and ceremonies, the administration of those covenants in those two different times and periods of time. However, there is only one way to be saved whether under the Old Covenant or under the New Covenant, and that is through Christ, who is the mediator of the one covenant of grace. And so, there are not multiple ways of being saved, as if God had a different plan of salvation under each of these covenants. There is only one covenant of grace and it is administered, that one covenant of grace is administered through, uh, in different ways, by way of outward signs, symbols, ceremonies. But keep in mind, there's only one unified covenant of grace. From the very time of Adam's fall, where Christ promises that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent until the time in which the Lord realizes fully the salvation of all his people from beginning to end, one covenant of grace. That covenant of grace and the way it's administered, we see uh, it's administered to Abraham in Genesis 7.17. We see that it's administered to Moses and all Israel in Exodus 34:27. We see that it's administered to those in the New Testament period, like ourselves, as well in Galatians chapter 3. And we'll be looking at that more specifically. But the covenant of grace is summarized in this relationship, or in these words, I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. That is a summary of this covenant of grace. And we find that summary of God's covenant of grace in the relationship that he establishes with his people from, as we said, uh, that those exact words used with regard to Abraham, we find them, again, with regard, uh, used in regard to God's people uh, in, uh, uh, in Exodus as they uh, uh, come out of the, uh, the land of Egypt. We see that uh, it is used with regard to God's people in the New Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And then finally, even in Revelation 21, 3, uh, when, again, that glorious city comes from heaven, the eternal state, we see that, uh, that that particular covenant relationship continues uh, and it's the basis of our dwelling with him for all eternity when we 
read in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And so, from beginning to end, that is the essence of the covenant. That's the, uh, that's the uh, relationship by way of this covenant that's established between God and undeserving sinners. That's why it's so amazing that God would say, they're my people and I'm their God. Unbelievable that we who deserve God's everlasting wrath and condemnation are the people of God, are the children of God by way of adoption. We have an inheritance. We are... We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Well, let us consider in our text today, having made these preliminary remarks, the, uh, these main points uh, from our text. And though there are more main points that I would normally have, doesn't mean the sermon is going to be longer, but, uh, but these are the main points. The historical context, first of all. Second, the promise... The promise is not changed at all by the giving of the law. The promise is not changed at all by the giving of the law in Galatians 3, 15 through 18. Thirdly, the law of Moses actually makes the promise in the covenant, covenant of grace necessary. The law of Moses actually makes the promise in the covenant of grace necessary. Galatians 3, 9, 19 through 22. The fourth main point, the new covenant is the full manifestation of the covenant made with Abraham in Galatians 3.23-29. through 29. And then finally, implications drawn from the text. So let's look at the historical context. What was going on? What's the background to Galatians chapter 3 as we consider this together? Paul writes to the Galatian churches which were being misled by false teachers who declared that justification was based upon obedience to various elements of the Old Testament ceremonial law like circumcision or dietary laws or feasts and festivals. Paul writes to these churches so as to bring them back to the only ground of their acceptance before God. And that is the obedience of Christ in perfectly keeping all of God's law and in perfectly offering his life as a sacrifice for sin on behalf of undeserving sinners chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Although Paul was specifically addressing those who sought to keep various ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Law in order to be acceptable before God, one could substitute anything in the place of those ceremonial laws wherein man would seek to be righteous before God on the basis of his own works of obedience or righteousness, whether it be in keeping the Ten Commandments, that one believes that in keeping any of or all of the Ten Commandments is that which makes them worthy and acceptable to be justified before God. Or his baptism, or his church membership, or his being a minister of the gospel, or his being a covenanter. Whatever he would think makes him, or she would think makes her, to be acceptable and worthy before God would be a work of the law, in effect. Even though in this particular circumstance, it seems that it was the ceremonial aspects of the law that people were trusting in. People can trust in a host of other things and thinking that makes them acceptable and worthy before God. One is only justified <clears throat> on the basis of Christ's obedience and by faith in Christ and his righteousness. 
God does not justify the worthy or the righteous or the godly. Remember that. God does not justify the worthy or the righteous or the godly. God only justifies the unworthy, the unrighteous, and the ungodly. As Romans chapter 4 teaches. Where we read Romans chapter 4. But to him that worketh not, this is uh, Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That is, his faith, not in and of itself, but the righteousness which comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. That imputed righteousness is accounted for him as his own righteousness imputed to him. So it is the object of his faith that is accounted for his righteousness, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you cannot prepare yourself by way of your acts of obedience or cooperation with God in order that you be worthy and acceptable before God. Don't wait until you reach, dear ones, that level of worthiness on your part or where you feel, I'm finally ready to come to Christ. I'm finally acceptable. I've finally thrown off this habit. Now I'm ready to come to Christ. I finally have spent these many hours in prayer. I've finally done this or that or whatever. Now I'm ready to come to Christ. Dear ones, that is not, again, the basis upon which we come to Christ. We come to Christ when we see our needy, our desperately needy situation and circumstance that we cannot save ourselves, that due to our sin we are condemned to die and suffer forever in hell. And when we recognize and acknowledge that, we reach out to Christ who alone can save us. Not looking within to find something to save us, but looking outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus alone to save us. And so it's not how many tears you shed over your sin. Or the the various amendments that you make in your life that prepare you to come to Christ. But your need, seeing your need, seeing that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. Christ came to die for and to save those who know they're sick, not those who think they're well. In Galatians chapter 3, the apostle seeks to demonstrate that Abraham was not made acceptable before God on the basis of his works, namely circumcision, for he was circumcised after he was justified, as we see in, likewise in Romans chapter 4, verse 10. Thus his circumcision was a seal of the righteousness which was imputed to him by faith before he was circumcised, according to Romans 4.11. The false teachers, on the other hand, taught the Galatians that God had altered or changed salvation once the law of Moses was given. That the Lord now required obedience to the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law before he would save man. But Paul says that such a teaching is not the gospel. It's a false gospel. And to embrace that false gospel is to embrace a curse. Paul authoritatively declares that the law of Moses, which came 430 years subsequent to the covenant made with Abraham, cannot annul the promise of God. The same promise of salvation by grace through faith alone that was made 
to Abraham, was made to Moses, was made to Israel. And it is the same promise of salvation by grace through faith alone that is made to the Galatians and is made to us as well as we look at Galatians chapter 3. Herein, Paul makes it exceedingly clear that the covenant of grace is one and the same covenant in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So we come to the second main point. The promise is not changed at all by the giving of the law. Look with me at Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18. find my way back to Galatians chapter 3 Galatians 3 15 through 18 brethren I speak after the manner of men though it be but a man's covenant yet if it be confirmed no man disannuleth or addeth thereto now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made he saith not and to seeds as of many but as of one and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul declares, in effect, you can't change the promise of God, which is the Abrahamic covenant, which is found in the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of grace. You cannot change the promise of God because the promise precedes the giving of the Mosaic law. In fact, even prior, as we noted, prior to Abraham, it goes back to Adam. Did God ever invalidate or abolish the promise that he made to Adam or that he made to Noah or that he made to Abraham? Did he ever abolish that, that promise in the Mosaic Covenant? To the contrary. God states that that promise made to Abraham that was made to Isaac it was made to Jacob, continues in Exodus 2, verse 24. This is when his people, God's people, were in, uh, were in Egypt. But note here, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Why? Because of the covenant. Because of the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not because they were holy people or righteous or godly people. Not because they earned or merited God looking with favor upon them. But because of the promise that was made. You see, the Exodus is a picture of God's redemption from sin. Furthermore, the Apostle states, in effect, you can't change the promise because the promise points beyond the Mosaic Law to Christ, who is the seed, who is the, the seed of Abraham. In Galatians 3.16, Promise can't be changed because because the law intervened here in between because the promise points to Christ. The promise did not die with Abraham but was passed on to his posterity as we have seen through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon and ultimately to Christ and to all those who trust in Christ who are in the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this promise was signified and sealed by the outward sign of circumcision in the Old Testament and by the outward sign and seal of baptism in the New Covenant. The third main point, 
the law of Moses actually makes the promise and the covenant of grace necessary. Look with me at Galatians 3, verses 19 through 22. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. If the promise of God, the promise of God's covenant made Abraham preceded the Mosaic Law, If that same promise pointed beyond the Mosaic Law to Christ and depended not upon the Mosaic Law, then what was the purpose of the Mosaic Law contained specifically here in ceremonies? The ceremonies of the Mosaic Law, according to Paul, revealed to God's people their need their sin and their need of a Savior. The various ceremonies, the sacrificial system continually reminded them that they're sinners. They're in need of a Savior. That unless sin is forgiven, they will suffer the consequences, the penalty of their sin. Not only physical death, but everlasting death. All of those ceremonies were pointing to Christ. They were not ends in themselves. They were pointing the people living then to their desperately needy situation before God. That God would provide not an animal, but a redeemer. Him who was, he who was both God fully God and fully man, even his only begotten Son, would become incarnated and would live to fulfill all righteousness for his people and die to suffer the penalty, the guilt and the penalty for their sin. Circumcision nor baptism dear ones, can thus save one by its mere application. It is a sign, both circumcision and baptism are signs and seals of the covenant of grace wherein salvation is purchased by Jesus Christ alone. A sign is something which points to that which is the reality which it represents. And so, the circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, a bloody ceremony reminded them that that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin and that this particular ordinance pointed them to their need to have their sins forgiven, cut away. There was one, namely God, who would do that for them through Christ. Likewise, Baptism points to the same thing in the application of water, the cleansing, the washing away of sin by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a seal. Both the circumcision was a seal as well as baptism is a seal. A seal is that which confirms that which is true. Because of the weakness of our flesh, God has condescended to give to us a seal as it were a signing of his name at the bottom of 
his last will and testament, that of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not only given us the promise, but he signed it to validate, to convert, to, to confirm it unto us, so as to bolster our faith. God didn't need to seal it. His word is sufficient. His promise is sufficient. But he did so to help our faith so that we can look at our baptism and say, God has, as it were, in our baptism, given his name upon us, placed his name upon us. He has signed and sealed and delivered this covenant to us. Furthermore, the Mosaic Law taught the people of God that the ceremonies of the law do not have the power to impart life, righteousness, or salvation, nor do any of the ordinances in the New Covenant either. They are means of God's grace. They are All of these ceremonies and all of these ordinances are channels or pipelines, if you will, of God's grace from heaven into our hearts whereby God communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Thus Paul strongly argues that promise and law, Abraham and Moses, are not enemies one of another. They're not enemies. They're only enemies if one seeks to be acceptable before God on the basis of the law and the covenant of works. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace are antithetical to one another. But the law in the hands of the mediator is not antithetical to the covenant of grace. These covenants of Ab- made to Abraham and to Moses do not contradict one another, but rather build one upon another. Fourthly, the fourth main point, the new covenant is the full manifestation of the covenant made with Abraham. The new covenant is the full manifestation of the covenant made with Abraham. In Galatians 3, 23-29, listen to what Paul says here. But before faith came, we were kept under the law shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When Paul says, but before faith came, in verse 23, he's talking about before faith in Christ who came to live and to die. He's talking about a particular period of time. He's not saying that those in the Old Testament did not have faith in uh, in Christ at all, because they did. They, They had to trust in Christ like we have to trust in Christ. They had to trust in a mediator, whom God appointed, God-man, just as we have to trust in Christ. They looked forward to his coming. We looked back to his coming. And so this particular event in history of which Paul speaks in Galatians 3.23, but before faith came, that is faith in Christ who has come to live and to die. We were, before that period of time, uh, as God's people kept under the law, that is, these ceremonies, uh, these Mosaic ceremonies, we're kept under them. Why? So that they might act as a schoolmaster preparing us, because I'm talking here about the unity of God's people, preparing us for Christ to come. 
preparing us for the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world through the various sacrificial uh, parts of the ceremonial law, through the various ceremonies that we see in the Old Testament, preparing us, preparing God's people for Christ so that when he came, they would be ready. That was the intent and purpose, that they would be ready to receive Christ the Messiah. Now, Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. But they will receive him yet in the future. Israel will come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Although the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Covenant have been abolished because they are realized in Christ, such as the sacrifices of priesthood, circumcision, dietary laws, feast days, Jewish Sabbath, Jewish the seventh day of the week type of Sabbath with the various uh, things that uh, ceremonially were associated with the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, We now have a Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week. Nevertheless, the promise of God's covenant grace made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, and all of the people of God in the Old Testament is the same promise of God's covenant grace realized in Christ and graciously bestowed on all who believe in Christ according to Galatians 3.29. Again, this is the summary. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that was made to Abraham. We partake of the same promise. Although the outward sign and seal of that covenant of grace made to Abraham that is circumcision, has been altered by God in the new covenant, is now baptism. Nevertheless, the same covenant of grace and the same promises are made today to those who believe Christ and to their children. For those who believe in Christ are Abraham's seed. All the blessings of Christ are summarized, as we said, in this covenant promise of the Lord, I will be your God and ye shall be my people. This this thread of God's covenant from beginning to end is one of those confirmations in my mind for me that just helps me to see so clearly that this is not the work. The Bible is not the work of man in simply coming up with these particular concepts and ideas, but it is threaded through every page of God's word. The covenant of grace from beginning to end is, is all of God. Let's look finally at the implications drawn from this text. <clears throat> well, one implication is when we read the scripture, we should presume continuity from one administration of the covenant to the next. We should presume continuity from after Adam fell and the covenant of grace, the promise of God's covenant is made to Adam. We should presume continuity from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Abraham and from Abraham to Moses and from Moses to the new covenant in the New Testament. We should presume continuity since the covenant of grace is one. One covenant of grace, we should presume continuity between the covenants. Beginning with Adam, after the fall. And that it is the only covenant whereby God's salvation is given to man. Rather than presuming discontinuity that everything God said in the previous covenant is annulled and abolished and that God must restate in the new covenant 
whether it be with Abraham, a, a new covenant that's, that uh, some would see with Abraham, or a new covenant that one would see with Moses or with David or whomever, rather than presuming discontinuity, we, we presume continuity because it is one covenant of grace simply administered differently. And so, how do we know that which we are to carry by way of outward ceremonies, by way of outward administration from one covenant or from one uh, administration, one particular historical uh, time which God uh, manifested this covenant of grace? Well, we look for either explicit statements to the effect that God says this outward part of the administration of the covenant has ceased or a good and necessary inference may be drawn to the effect that that outward administration of the covenant has ceased. Otherwise, as I said, we presume continuity from one age to the next. For example, don't assume that the sign of the rainbow no longer means what it did to Noah simply because that was a different covenant that God made with Noah than uh, God made his covenant. I say different, I mean because it was a covenant that God established with Noah and gave a particular sign and then we find God establishing a covenant with Abraham not different uh, essentially but there is a progression, as we will note in just a moment, by way of covenantal development throughout the scripture. Progressive revelation. Moving us ever closer to Christ, the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Or don't assume that the grave and serious sin of bestiality is no longer applicable to us because it's not repeated in the new covenant. We assume that it is. Those who have to find everything restated in the next in the next uh, historical um, manifestation or administration of God's covenant are operating off of a very slender amount of revelation. They only take again this particular view is called dispensationalism, and they only take that which they see as historically pertaining to them at that, in that period of history. But not all that which God has given previous to that because they view the covenant entirely different. They view it as separate covenants, one, distinctive covenants, separate one from the other. We view the covenant as one. likewise we would say why don't we have a priesthood today why don't we have a temple Uh, why don't we have all these outward ceremonies well because we find in various portions of the new covenant the new testament that God has abrogated abolished those particular ceremonies and therefore we know that we're not to continue to practice them and so just to emphasize a second point here which flows from what I just said is that again the covenants build one upon another we don't throw the past covenants away and say there's nothing for us to see or to learn from those past covenants they are a historical progression in understanding of God's covenant dealings with his people in various periods of history. In the way that he continues to show man's need of a savior from one particular period of history to another period of history to another period of history. If anything, these are not distinct not only these are we should not view these as distinct covenants, but rather in effect, they're like covenant renewals. 
They're like God having established the covenant of grace with Adam after the fall, and he continues in these different administrations to renew that covenant of grace that he made with, with Adam, that he makes then with Abraham, that he makes with Moses, and on on and on. These historical covenants may be viewed at different points of historical development like a flower. You have the seed, then the stem, then the bud, and the full flower. Or like a butterfly, where you have the caterpillar, the cocoon, and then the butterfly. Or like a man who's a baby, and then a toddler, then a child, then a youth, and then an adult. Or like a house that is built, which has a foundation, then a first floor, then the second floor. You see, the covenants, according to the dispensationalists, are, as we said, completely distinct and altogether separate from one another. They're like different flowers. One covenant's one flower. Another covenant's a different flower. They're not all the, one, the same flower. They're just different stages of development. Or the dispensations would view them as different butterflies rather than one butterfly in different stages of development. Or different men as far as different stages of development within the life of a man or a woman. Or different houses altogether. The dispensationalist is like when they explain what they believe, it's like they close the door to the covenant made with Abraham and walk out of the house into another house. It's not like they simply move from one room to another. They do walk outside the door and leave the house altogether. That's a false system of belief that is not taught in the scripture and which will lead one astray from the truth and have very serious consequences. How does the covenant, this covenantal perspective affect our view of baptism? Well, since God made his gracious covenant of promise with Abraham and gave the sign and seal of circumcision to Abraham, who had believed, and to Isaac, who was not yet able to exercise uh, a faith at eight days old, anyway. And since this sign of the covenant of grace was practiced by God's people throughout the Old Testament, and since in the New Covenant God did not annul the promise that was made to Abraham, but makes the same promise to all who believe in Christ as Abraham's seed, we conclude that the sign of the one covenant of grace, which now is baptism as it was circumcision in the old covenant, that the sign of the one covenant of grace is to be applied to both those who profess faith in Christ as members of the visible church and to their children who likewise are members of the visible church by way of God's word and by way of God's promise to them. Just as circumcision, as we said, was applied not only to Abraham who, Abraham, who believed, but also to Isaac when he was only eight days old. This is why we find the several references to household baptisms in the New Testament. Not simply believer's baptism, but household baptisms as in Acts 16.25 with Lydia, and as in 1 Corinthians 1.16 with Stephanus and others. This was, in fact, the message of Peter, as we have recently preached on, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.39, for the promise is unto you and to your children. See, that's the promises made to Abraham. 
And Peter says, the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off that this is not simply to you who are Jews, but those who are Gentiles be brought into the church as well. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Finally, I want you to to hear and to realize that the promise is made to you who have received the Albert sign seal of the covenant of grace, namely baptism. The promise that God will be your God and that you will be his people. This promise is made to you and that encompasses all of the blessings. All of the blessings and promises made to you in the covenant of grace are encapsulated in that statement. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's made to you. And so, I ask you, if that promise has been made to you, what are you doing to improve your baptism? To, to be able to draw, because it is a means of grace, is it only a means of grace at the particular and precise moment that you're baptized? Is that what God intended for baptism to be? Is just, it's, you know, it's just a, a real blessing at the time that we have baptism administered to us. Well, how does a child, a small child, um, at that precise moment, feel any of these blessings? The scripture would teach us, as well as our our confessional standards, would teach us that that the grace and the promise of God made to us in baptism as we reflect upon the meaning of our baptism, that it's a sign and a seal, as I described earlier, is a way to continue to improve upon our baptism. That God has made to us promises which we are to receive by faith. And on our part, God makes those promises. And when God makes promises to us, we are to believe them. We are to obey his promises. We are to obey his commandments. And so we are to go back to our baptism as saying, the Lord's covenant sign has been applied to me. God has said to me, I will be your God and you will be my people. How am I to live? And so as we reflect upon our baptism, as we witness the baptism of adults, who profess faith in Christ, as we witness the baptism of children, we should be thinking in terms not only of their baptism, but our own. And what our baptism, what God says to us in our baptism, as well as what we're to do by way of response to what God has said to us in our baptism. We're to love Him. We're to serve Him. Because this is a covenant of grace. Dear ones, the promises are there for you to receive by faith whatever your struggles, whatever you you have by way of, of afflictions and trials and besetting sins. In your baptism, the promise and all the promises of God are summarized. In that word, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's what we are stamped with in baptism. God claims us as his own. We belong to him, dear ones. That's how we should view the baptism. And we should be asking ourselves when we witness the baptism of others, am I acting? Am I thinking? Am I speaking as if I belong to God? Do I need to repent of sin in light of how I've treated and neglected and ignored my Savior? Have I been thankful, as I should, for all of his covenant blessings? See, that is how we improve upon our baptism. And it is, dear ones, a means of confirming assurance, assurance of faith within us. 
not because baptism without faith is something that we should trust in, or even when we exercise faith that we should trust in, but because it is something to which we can look that God has given to us for that very purpose to confirm both his promises to us and that we have responded in faith to those promises. And so, let us take advantage of that. And those of you who are children, youths who have been baptized from the time you were very small, me not even remember your baptism because you were so small. Do not rest and trust in your baptism or in your parents. Realize that your baptism calls for that response of reaching out in faith to Christ. Do not ignore the Lord as he calls out to you, invites you to come to him today. Because in baptism, we can see the gospel clearly presented. Let's stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee for the wonders of the covenant of grace and for the accomplishment of redemption by our Savior and the application of it to us by Thy blessed Spirit. We thank Thee, our Father, that that Thou art, uh, even through this outward this outward sign and seal of baptism, continuing to teach us the glories of thy salvation and our need of Christ every day. That just as, Lord, one does not reach into the bowl and baptize himself, so, O Lord, we cannot save ourselves. We must be saved by thee. We must be sanctified by thee. We must look to Christ to accomplish and and for the Spirit to apply all of these benefits unto us. We praise Thee, O Lord our God, for how clear uh, this presentation of the covenant of grace is in Thy Word. And we do, Father, embrace Thy promises now. We do embrace our Savior afresh and anew. We do renew our covenant, Lord, and our response to that covenant to fight against the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil all the days of our life. We pray, our Father, that Thou would uh, uh, hear our prayer now, uh, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.